All right. Hey, everybody. Uh, I am re-recording this lesson because when we recorded it live, we had a little technical difficulty and we weren't able to have the audio from the class. So this is just me in my office going back over my notes. It'll probably be quite a bit quicker than it was teaching it live with the class. And uh, you won't have any class interaction this time around. But thought it was important to record this content so uh, that way you can think through some things regarding the clarity of Scripture. Well, um, I, I went over a little bit of review from the previous lesson, uh, but before I did that, I guess, I shared with the class a book that I thought would be helpful for them to get. It's titled A Primer on Biblical Literacy, a primer, spelled like primer, on Biblical Literacy. It's by Corey Marsh, and actually we interviewed him on the Do Theology podcast about that book. So if you wanted a preview of what that book is all about, you can look up our interview with Corey Marsh on the Do Theology podcast. But the primer on biblical literacy will touch on a lot of the things that we've discussed in these first two classes, uh, but from a different perspective, um, I mean, same overall teaching, but a, a little bit of a different perspective, and it'll just word things in a way that may resonate with you better. But uh, the review that I got into with the class, talking about the clarity of Scripture, I, you know, I'm, I want to provide clarity on the issue of clarity, because uh, it seems that when we hear the about the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture, or someone talks about how Scripture has, the, the Bible has as a quality clarity, there can be a lot of confusion as to what that means. It doesn't mean that there will never be difficult passages. It, never, it doesn't mean that you'll never struggle to understand something, but it means that Scripture itself, because it is God's revelation, has clarity. And so one of the things I said last week in the last lesson is that just as God only speaks authoritatively, he only speaks clearly. And that goes for both Testaments. God only speaks clearly. He doesn't speak in a way that is smoke and mirrors, hidden meanings. He doesn't speak deceptively. He is direct and he's clear with what he seeks to communicate. The result of God's book, as God revealed and, and made a book, is a clear revelation that its recipients can understand. When God communicated with mankind, he was always doing so, so that man could understand and obey, understand and believe and obey. That, that's, that was his purpose in revealing. And so he speaks clearly. And this is particularly important when tracing God's program, when we consider the Testaments as a whole, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because oftentimes you'll hear people say things like the Old Testament is unclear, but the New Testament sheds light on the Old Testament and helps us understand the Old Testament. And when you consider that, that statement, it's like, well, wait a second. There were people who had, for well over a thousand years, had the Old Testament without the New Testament. So does that mean they were unable to understand because they didn't have the New Testament? Well, I don't think that's the case. But to illustrate the point, there were a couple of tweets that were sent out earlier this week that uh, I'd like to quote. 
So you can kind of just hear people in their own words saying these things. One person tweeted, the New Testament authors tell us what the Old Testament means in light of Christ. The New Testament authors tell us what the Old Testament means in light of Christ. Okay, well, that statement could be okay unless that person is saying that the real meaning of the Old Testament could not be accessed until the New Testament came along, that that the Old Testament meaning was locked away. It was inaccessible until the New Testament came along, and then now all of a sudden people are able to understand what the Old Testament means. Because uh, I don't think that's the case at all. I think uh, God gave the Old Testament to his people, and as the recipients of that revelation, they were expected to understand its meaning, that no aspect of its meaning was locked away. Another tweet that was sent out, this person says, the New Testament clarifies what the Old Testament authors meant. So you get the same idea with uh, the Old Testament authors meaning somehow being obscured, almost like the authors were inspired, but somewhere between inspiration and their communication on their pen, uh, the meaning was lost. I don't know. I, I don't really understand that way of thinking. But uh, there's also this additional word of clarification where he says, the New Testament clarifies what the Old Testament authors meant. And so what this is also saying is that the Old Testament was, is unclear. You see that? The Old Testament needs clarification. The New Testament doesn't need clarification, but the Old Testament does need clarification. That's what this person is saying. I don't know how you get there from Scripture itself. Scripture never teaches that. And uh, theologically, philosophically, I also don't know how you get there. There's a uh, pretty popular Reformed theologian out there whose name is Kim Riddlebarger. And Kim Riddlebarger uses this analogy of a dark room. He says that the Old Testament is essentially like a dark room. You're, you're in it. You're feeling around. You can feel that there's stuff around. But you don't really know where you're going or what you're touching you just don't have that ability to know. And then the New Testament is like the light. It's the big light in the ceiling that gets flipped on, and now you can understand everything. Well, again, that's just along the same lines. That means the Old Testament meaning was inaccessible. It means that the Old Testament was unclear, and that the New Testament is of a higher quality revelation than the Old Testament, which, again, I, I simply reject and I think that does damage to the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. We believe from Genesis to Revelation, all Scripture is equally clear. So the Old Testament is just as clear as the New Testament in communicating God's program. If As God is communicating what he's doing in the world, from creation to the new heaven and new earth, as he's revealing aspects of, of his big overarching plan for his universe, it's clear. Old Testament or New Testament, it's equally clear. And so we must seek to see the Bible's storyline more like a puzzle being built rather than some sort of like shape-shifting that occurs. Here's what I mean by that. When you consider the progress of Revelation, you know, God didn't give us everything all at once, but he gave us 
pieces that build upon each other. So as we think of God's revelation of Scripture like a puzzle being built, it's like God has has laid down certain puzzle pieces, you know, the book of Job or the book of Deuteronomy or, uh, you know, Psalms. He puts puzzle pieces down, and, and the people who are receiving this, as Scripture is collected, they're seeing the puzzle being built, and they, they look at these pieces and say, oh, that one's got you know, uh, an eyeball in it. It almost looks like a cat's eye. And, oh, this piece over here, it looks like, uh, you know, a flower petal or something. And this piece is blue. It looks like the sky. And so you're starting to get an idea of what the picture looks like. And in this analogy, we'll say, um, you know, you don't have the box that shows you the full picture all at once. You're kind of learning as it goes, and you're trying to figure it out. But he, God is the one putting the pieces down, and he puts the pieces in the exact right spot. Well, then, as the revelation continues, and we get to the completeness, the fullness of God's revelation, we now have a full picture, and we see, oh, yeah, that is a cat, and he's going through a field of flowers and a, with the blue sky. And you can see the whole picture, but those initial pieces that were put down, they were in the right place, and they had the right images on them and the right color. And what came after, the pieces that came after to fill out the picture they didn't do anything to the original pieces. They didn't change the original pieces in any way. And so what you have then is just a completion of the overall picture, but not some sort of change to what came before. And that's what some people uh, will do when they go to Scripture, is they'll say, well, the later revelation changes what came before. The New Testament reinterprets the Old Testament effectively in their view, and scripture's meaning changes. And this is where we're going in this class. We'll eventually get there, so I'll use this as an example. Take Israel. In the Old Testament, there were many promises given to the nation of Israel and the restoration that they would experience in their land with all sorts of blessings, including agricultural blessings. Well, some people say that the New Testament actually reinterprets those promises. Yeah, of course, you know, Jews at that time, during Amos's time, for example, when they received that prophecy through Amos that talked about these things, or Zechariah's time when they saw that, they, of course, interpreted it as God is going to restore national physical Israel in a physical land. But, they say, the New Testament comes along and tells us that we should not focus on national physical Israel, but instead we should focus on spiritual Israel. And spiritual Israel is the church, people from all nations. And that these promises now apply to us, and they're being fulfilled even right now in a spiritual sense. Therefore, there's nothing to look forward to with this national Israel business or physical restoration in in the physical land. But instead, everything is just spiritual. So that is not like building a puzzle where those initial pieces stay in place, that's more like shape-shifting, you know, where you you look at those original pieces and say, oh, actually, those are the wrong color and they're in the wrong spot, and you move it all around and you end up creating a different picture or a different storyline than what the Bible is giving us. So our goal when we embrace the clarity of Scripture and we're looking to follow God's storyline, our goal is to just take what God has given us and let scripture build upon scripture but don't ever pretend like scripture is going to change scripture 
why would that need to happen? If all revelation is clear and God always means what he says, why would we ever need to go back and reinterpret? We, we wouldn't need to, of course. Well, another statement I made last week is that because of the clarity of Scripture, we don't need extra biblical resources to arrive at a biblical text's meaning. All we need is the context of the passage in order to arrive at the meaning of a text. That's the clarity of Scripture. Now, there are certain needs that we all have that are exempted from this. Uh, For instance, you need basic cognitive function. If you are in a coma and someone walks by and tosses a Bible on your lap, that person can't say, well, that that's all you need. Uh, that person, God's going to tell that person everything because now that person in the coma has a Bible. Well, no, you need basic cognitive function, okay? You need to be able to understand the language that you're reading. Uh, perhaps there are certain words you don't know the definition of, and you might need to look up the definition of words because words have meaning, okay? You, you might need to do that. For instance, uh, the passage I'm preaching this Sunday has the word vacillating in it in our English translation, vacillating. Well, it's not too often people use the word vacillating. You may need to look that up. Um, for the Christian, the Holy Spirit is obviously important in this conversation. He is the one who communicates to us the mind of God, who teaches us the word of God. Also, the local church, God saved us in a community. He placed us in a local family, and he's gifted churches with those who are able to teach and with all kinds of good counsel. And so we don't study in a vacuum. Now, do you uh, look to your local church to interpret the Bible for you? No, you're able to interpret the Bible for yourself, to read it, and to get to its meaning by yourself. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't involve your community in your Bible interpretation, okay? So so we understand all of these things going on, but at the end of the day, we can still say we don't need extra-biblical resources to arrive at a biblical text's meaning. God gave us the Bible. He didn't give us the Bible and the Bible's handbook. He didn't do that. So when we say Scripture is sufficient, that means we can understand Scripture because Scripture is clear, and it will address what we need in all of life, and we can appeal to God's Word, and we can learn and grow, all right? Now, I never want to disparage extra-biblical resources. I use them every day, okay? But we're talking about need here. We don't need extra-biblical resources to arrive at the meaning of a passage. So here are a couple of quotes about the clarity of Scripture from places on the web that I respect. The first one is from Got Questions. So if you're looking for just a simple, straight definition of the clarity of Scripture, Got Questions defines it this way. The central message of the Bible is clear and understandable, and the Bible itself can be properly interpreted in a normal, literal sense. Okay, that's pretty good. But here's one I like even better, and it's a much longer quote. It's more like a paragraph from Ligonier, Ligonier Ministries, started by R.C. Sproul. And hear what, uh, what it has to say. Now, the, the opening line, it says, many people treat the Bible like a puzzle or a secret code. When it says puzzle here, it's not talking about what I was talking about earlier, a, a puzzle building upon itself. It's talking about like a, a mysterious puzzle that you have to figure out, that it's all just mysterious and you have to unlock certain meanings in the text. Okay, so when it says puzzle here, don't equate that with what I was talking about earlier. Different analogy. But here's the, the quote from Ligonier. 
Many people treat the Bible like a puzzle or a secret code that is full of hidden meanings accessible only to a select few. Nothing could be further from the truth. Scripture can be understood by anyone who puts in the basic effort to read it in its context. We can read and hear the Scripture with profit knowing that God's message to us is clear. I really like this middle sentence that Scripture can be understood by anyone who puts in the basic effort to read it in its context. I think that's a just a fantastic summation of the clarity of Scripture. You pay attention to the context, you put in the basic effort to seek to understand, and it can be understood. Scripture is clear, okay? So with that in mind, how do we make sense of the passages that are particularly difficult to us? We know for a fact that Peter thought some of Paul's writings were difficult. In 2 Peter 3, he calls Paul's writings Scripture, and he adds that he writes some things that are difficult to understand. I agree with Peter. Well, how do we make sense of that? The first thing we need to consider is what makes difficult passages difficult? What makes difficult passages difficult? And if you were to survey the range of answers to that question, I think at the top of that list needs to needs to be human depravity. Our own depravity, our fallen state, our propensity to be prideful, um, our inability to know all things, um, our inability to relate to the world around us the way we should. Uh, there are all kinds of factors that are our fault. And so the, the depravity of man has to be at the top of the list about what makes difficult passages difficult. So we shouldn't point to the passage and say, well, this is a, a passage that God revealed in a different way. These other scriptures, God revealed in a very clear way. And this passage, well, there's a fault with it. It's unclear. I don't think that's the answer. That's not how I'm going to explain that. I'm going to agree, along with everybody, that there are passages that are difficult. But I'm not going to explain that by saying that passage is unclear. I'm just not going to go there. I'm going to say, there's something about me that has made this difficult. There's something about us that has made this more challenging. And I'm going to explain it that way and seek to get past that any way that I can. So how can we get past the difficulty? Well, of course, there's study that we need to do. And we need to study together. We need to study the Word of God. One person in the class Wednesday night mentioned uh, the helpfulness of a concordance. What does a concordance do? Even though it's technically an extra-biblical resource, all it is is, uh, you know, an index of Scripture. It, what it does is it forces us to go back into Scripture. It does the work for us. It kind of cuts out the work that we would do in compiling Scriptures. So a concordance is just a com- compilation of Bible verses, and those can be very helpful to put us back into Scripture to see the broader context or the, the word meaning uh, the the tracing of a theme throughout Scripture. So, yeah, we need to study the Word of God and study the Word of God together. Okay, uh, that's that's absolutely key. And again, not disparaging extra biblical resources. Read commentaries too. Pick up, uh, you know, something that gets into the cultural stuff of that time. That can be helpful, but don't ever think that those are necessary to get to the meaning. 
All right. If that's necessary to get to the meaning, then in any time before those commentaries or cultural books were written, it, people were hopeless because they couldn't know what God said. And I don't think that's the case. So just got to be careful with that. Well, during the class, I got the whiteboard out. And uh, on the whiteboard, I had a uh, um, like a timeline, basically, all the way to the left. The, the line started. So there was a vertical line, a short vertical line, and extending from that was a long horizontal line. And at the end of the long horizontal line, all the way to the right, was an arrow to show that it continues on. And on the left side, where the line began, I wrote creation. And at the very end, where the arrow was, I wrote new heaven and new earth. So as we consider God's big program for his world, we know that there was a point in time when all things came into existence because God created all things. And we know that there's not going to be a time where we go back to nothing, but God is going to recreate. God is going to give us a new heaven and a new earth, and there will be an eternal existence for Christians in the new earth. That's all really cool. So I asked the class what events had happened that they were sure. What events were they sure of that have, that have happened already? And so we started with... Um, the fall. I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? Uh, so put it on the timeline really close to creation. There's the fall. That that took place already. Adam and Eve fell. Genesis 3 talks about that. We talked about the flood. You know, Noah's family was saved through the flood. You can put that on there. Uh, the parting of the Red Sea, the Exodus, uh, Joshua and Israel entering the land, the overtaking of the northern kingdom, and then couple hundred years later, the southern kingdom. All right, so there are these things that have happened. For us, what is absolutely central? Well, the cross, Jesus came, lived a perfect life. He died, rose again. That happened already. The building of the church has begun. Um, so yeah, but we, we put all those things up on the, the board. And then I asked the question, where where are we? So if you were to put a dot, where are we? And what comes after this point? And so we put a dot in the church age that comes after the time of Christ and talked about the things that are to come. The rapture and the second coming of Christ, the millennial kingdom, uh, and then, of course, the new heaven and new earth. That's that's ahead. That's we're, we're looking forward to that time. That hasn't happened yet. And so then I asked the question, how do you know? <laughs> All right, so here we go. You've made these claims. Now you got to defend these claims. How do you know that? How do you know? Well, the answer has to be because of what Scripture says. Scripture tells us what these things will look like. Um, so, for instance, if we're talking about the second coming of Christ, Scripture has all sorts of descriptions. The Bible includes many descriptive terms about the second coming of Jesus Christ, and we know that that hasn't happened yet. We haven't experienced that as a people yet. The new heaven and new earth, all kinds of descriptions in the Bible, and we're not there. We're not seeing those things. And so I, I said, you know, to the class, you got to bear with me, but we're going to do a little exercise. So we turned to Isaiah 65. That's where I'll go now. Isaiah 65. And I want to read like 11 verses in Isaiah 65, starting in verse 13. God is speaking to Israel here. 
Now with Israel, there's a remnant that he talks about. There's a remnant of Israel uh, that will believe, but the rest of Israel won't believe, and they'll be judged. They'll be judged by God. And so God is giving them some insight into the future. This was, you know, remember Isaiah about 700 B.C. or so. Isaiah here is giving a prophecy to Israel, and God, through him, is talking about what's going to happen to Israel. So starting in verse 13 of Isaiah 65, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. Okay, so God is saying the remnant will eat, but the rest of Israel will be hungry. Behold, my servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. Behold, my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you will cry out with a heavy heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit. You will leave your name a curse to my chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you. But my servants will be called by another name, because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my sight. Check this out. Verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. How about this promise? No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build another, or they will not build and and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. Wow. Well, the first question I asked the class was, does this mean what it says? (laughs) That is a very legitimate question in this discussion of the clarity of Scripture. What I just read in Isaiah here for us, does this mean what it says? Well, the answer needs to be yes. So hopefully you said yes. Well, the second question is, what does it say? On the one hand, it says that the Lord God will slay those in Jerusalem. Judgment will come upon Jerusalem, and certain Israelites will be judged by God for their unbelief and will be slain by God. But the others, the remnant, they're going to have all kinds of joy. Their lives will be extended. It's an amazing thing that God says, for as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. Wow, that's amazing. That the youth will die at the age of 100. So if someone dies at 100 years old, it's like a child dying during this time. And God says he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. 
No more weeping, no more crying. Well, that's really incredible. That is absolutely incredible. So then the last question I asked the class is, has this happened yet? Well, the answer is no. It has not happened yet. This is something that will literally take place. There will be all kinds of physical effects that are described here in this passage, and it has not happened yet. So then we turn to Revelation, because when we talk about new heaven and new earth, well, Revelation is quite relevant. The last two chapters, starting in Revelation 21, in verse 10, it says, this is the Apostle John writing, And he carried me away in the Spirit. This is one of the seven angels carried John away. In the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and the gates... And at the gates, twelve angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. We'll drop down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Are you considering if this means what it says? We're talking about the new Jerusalem that's found in the new earth. Does it mean what it says? Well, let's keep reading. Now we're chapter 22, starting in verse 1. Then he, this angel, showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, for they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Well, that's amazing. Uh, One more passage, dropping down to verse 10, same chapter, last chapter of the Bible, verse 10. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. All right. Well, considering all of these things, does it mean what it says? Again, the answer is yes. It needs to be yes. Scripture means what it says. Well, what does it what does it say? <laughs> that's that's the challenge from that point, right? What does it what does it say? Well, it talks about a New Jerusalem, a real physical city, a real physical place. It's a holy city, the New Jerusalem. It speaks of the Father and Son serving as the temple, and the glory of God is the light in that temple. It describes this amazing new heaven and new earth. It's curse-less. It's sin-less. The wicked are going to be rightly judged in a final judgment, and there's just going to be eternal bliss focused on the glory of God for all eternity in a new physical place. Is this the same general idea as Isaiah 65? Well, yeah, it is. It's a little confusing in Isaiah 65 because you have uh, the concept of a new heaven and new earth brought up, and then it goes on to talk about the youth will die at 100. Well, how is anybody dying in the new earth? I think what you have in Isaiah is another mountaintop prophecy type situation where Isaiah is putting two events together as it's being revealed to him, And he speaks of a new heaven and new earth, but then he goes on to describe some events that pertain to the millennial kingdom. And so those are two separate items, but the prophecy went together. Kind of like in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, Isaiah says, For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He's going to rule and reign. Well, we know now that Jesus did come, The child was born to us. A son was given. But it's not yet the time when the government is on his shoulder. There's a gap in between. I think the same thing is happening in Isaiah 65 where there's a gap in between. And uh, there's no way for Isaiah to know that, but that's how the Lord gave it to him because the Lord's purpose in giving him that revelation wasn't to make a timeline. It wasn't precise chronological detail. But instead he was... Uh, making a point about what he would be doing in the future. And now with the puzzle filled out for us, when we have the whole of Revelation, we can see that there's some time gaps going on. But we can still say this is the same general idea as Isaiah 65 that we get here at the end of the Bible. And the question is, after what does it say, is, um, has this happened yet? Because there are some people out there, I won't call them Christians, their their theological camp is called preterism, so they can be called preterists. They believe that this has already happened, what we just read in Revelation, chapters 21 and 22, that the millennial kingdom, that's behind us, tribulation behind us, second coming of Christ behind us, great white throne judgment behind us. And right now we are in the new heaven and new earth because this is all very spiritual. They don't like the idea of talking about the physical. 
but God's fulfillment here is a spiritual fulfillment. After all, Jesus said he's coming quickly. These things will soon take place. John wrote this in the first century. Did Jesus come quickly? Are all these things soon taking place from John's perspective? And they would say, yeah, uh, yeah, that, that it happened real soon. That actually John wrote Revelation before 70 A.D. and the second coming happened in 70 A.D. That's what they would say. Well, um, I played a clip during the class of a preterist kind of explaining these things. His name is Don Preston, and I'll just kind of run over the basics of how he gets to this view. He talked about Isaiah 65 in the video, and he also talked about Revelation. And basically, this is how the argument goes. The New Testament teaches that the church is the New Jerusalem, that the church is the fulfillment of Zion. Therefore, the New Testament is teaching us that in Isaiah 65, what is really being conveyed there is that the new heaven and new earth is the church's existence. So when God says that he's going to make a new heaven and new earth, he's saying after he judges physical Jerusalem, spiritual Jerusalem will be created, the new Jerusalem, the church. And you can't have the new Jerusalem without the new heaven and new earth. Therefore, we are in the new heaven and new earth right now. Preterists believe that Jesus came back in 70 AD to judge physical Jerusalem, and from that point forward, the new Jerusalem, the church, has existed, the fulfillment of Zion, we are in the new heaven and new earth. The reason why, according to preterists, the reason why Galatians, Hebrews, Revelation, that in these books it is said that the new Jerusalem is to come, it's because they were written before 70 AD. So old Jerusalem had to be destroyed and taken from its bondage so that the new Jerusalem could then flourish and the new heaven and new earth could be realized. According to the preterist, God's eschatological goal has always been spiritual redemption in Christ. To expect another physical Jerusalem is just materialistic thinking to the preterist. Like, if you're going to say God's going to restore physical national Israel with physical blessings in the land, well, that's just materialism. You need to seek after the spiritual reality. Well, this is really Gnostic thinking. But for our purposes here, out of all the things I could be critiquing, I'll just critique this. Preterism does not believe that Scripture means what it says. But instead, there is some sort of hidden spiritual meaning that is inaccessible to the person approaching the Bible, seeking to understand it in its context. If you go to the Old Testament and see the promises to Israel in their context, you will not be able to get to the true meaning, according to the preterist. But instead, you have to say, this doesn't really mean what it says, but it means something radically different. And I'm going to seek to find that hidden spiritual meaning. Well, that is no way to start theological study. That will not lead you to the truth. That will instead send you in a bad direction where you will be farther and farther away from what God wants you to know and understand. God has spoken plainly and clearly, and if we approach the Bible with just the basic effort to understand it in its context, like that Ligonier quote I read earlier said, 
then we can understand Scripture. We can understand the message from God as long as we seek to read it in its context because God speaks clearly. Okay? Well, thanks for bearing with me for this re-record, and we'll catch you in the next lesson.